I'm going to say it right, off the, right out of the bat. Uh, Romans 13, 1-7 is a difficult text. Now, let me tell you why it's a difficult text. It's not difficult to understand. There's only, there's only the command in, first, in the first verse. Let every person, literally soul, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Full stop. Okay? Easy enough. Easy enough to declare. Easy enough even to comprehend. But if you're anything like me, you've already thought about 12 different things and 10 different exceptions to that rule. Certainly, it doesn't mean every authority anywhere at all times, regardless of what they do or say. Certainly, it doesn't say that. Well, what does it say? We'll talk about the exceptions, not this week, but before we get to exceptions, we have to understand what it's saying to us. It's a difficult text. It's not difficult to understand. What's difficult is understanding its original context, which is why I read it in 12 and a little bit more of 13 as well, because 13, 1 to 7, we need to make sense of this. 13, 1 to 7 is sandwiched between texts about love, beginning back in Romans 12, 9. 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly love is how 12, 9 unfolds. And then if you jump down to 13, 8, 9, and 10, he comes back to love. There's such, such that there are some who actually think that 13, 1 to 7 is not from Paul. Like somebody later stuck in 13, 1 to 7. Because if you take out 13, 1 to 7, you could just read it straight through and it works. So it's an immediate question like, why in the world did you put that there? But before we tackle that question, I want you to be sure you understand what its context is. It is jammed between teachings on love, particularly love for enemies, and not taking your own vengeance. And then this talk about government, and then back to love, and honoring all people. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about that. So it's, it's a difficult text, not that it's difficult to understand, but it's difficult to understand the original context, and then I will argue even more difficult to understand how to apply or not to apply it in this context. And that's what makes me furrow my brow, rub my forehead. That's the most difficult part of this passage which is why we're going to be here for a couple of weeks. It's the, the most difficult part of this passage is not in its preaching. It's not in its understanding. It's making sure we clear away all our preconceived notions of what a government ought to do and be and let the text say something to us. Particularly on Staten Island. New York City in general, but particularly on Staten Island. This is... I would argue Romans 13, 1 to 7 is more difficult to preach on Staten Island than it would be in Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Manhattan. Staten Island is, is a unique bird. And so it's going to make it a little bit, my task, a little bit more difficult. And I pray that you all are patient with me and hear the text. Because I'm probably going to be too conservative for liberals, and I'm going to be too liberals for conservatives. And so I readily identify myself as being politically homeless. And I want to urge that thought upon you as well. And whether or not that's something that Christians, generally speaking, 
ought to consider themselves to be. During the events of the past year, this is a, this is a phenomenon. This is, I was just talking about trying to understand some of the movements out in the world today so that when they begin to find their way into this church, I and with the elders are out, are, are out ahead of it so that we can be prepared to teach you and to enable you to deal with some of these particularly sociological movements that also have theological implications. One of the things that are going on right now, because of everything that's been going on, is the language of deconstruction. Many Christians now are deconstructing the faith, meaning because of everything that's been going on in our country, particularly over the last year or so, people have taken a giant step back and said, wait a minute, what do I really believe about Christianity? And some of it is a really healthy, healthy thing. Some of it is not. We're buying into the politics and we're, we're transforming our, our, our Christianity based on what we believe politically. And I've been pushing against that for more than a year now, that it should be the exact opposite of that. And we'll continue to do that gently. Due to the events of the past year, many Christians are rethinking, deconstructing. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that Christians ought to always be reforming. That's not original with me, but I like the mentality. Christians ought to always be reforming in the sense that we should never lie complacent. I'm always leery about somebody who believes exactly the same thing now in their older years as they did when they were 15. You grow, you mature, you change. It doesn't mean that you forego the orthodox historical doctrines of the Christian faith, but there are a number of things that you find, man, I was a little too tight on that. Man, I was a little too wide on that. And these kinds of things some of which we'll be speaking about in the days to come. What exactly it is that you and I believe about the Christian faith, about its application in the world today, and particularly as it relates to perceived instances of injustice. We're swallowing whole, it seems to me, entire systems of thought that are beginning to move entire churches off track if not dividing right down the middle. The division that is in the churches of America today, literally, my wife will tell you, keeps me awake at night. I have cried more in the past year over the division and the disunity in the body of Christ, most of it politically driven, than I have cried probably in all the years up to this point in time. Today we'll do two things. Uh, I'm going to further set the context. That, that's goal number one. And then goal number two is just to look at the first verse, the command. Because the, the context is going to take the better part of the sermon, which ought to signal to you, gee, he thinks that's important. And, and that be a right signal to receive. Okay. So there are two contexts. There are two points this morning. First, the two contexts. And then secondly, the one command. Okay, and then that'll set me up for next week and probably the week after that as well. Okay, and I'm eager for your note-taking and for your, you know, 
questioning and so forth. I'm going to talk to the elders sooner than later. They don't know this yet, but I'm going to talk to them sooner than later and see whether or not this, this ought to evolve into a Q&A, a Zoom Q&A, that kind of thing. You know, we used to do the pizza and that, that kind of thing, but maybe we need to open this up a little bit and see what, what, we need to, what we need to do along those lines, okay? Elders, heads up. Okay, so the two contexts... The two contexts, first, is the, the, the narrow one, the Romans context, and then we'll, we'll, go, we'll pan out, we'll scale out here, and we'll go to the wider New Testament context, okay? Those are the two contexts, and then we'll look at the one command to finish up our time together. So let's look at the two contexts first, okay? Read, read one way, uh, Romans 13, 1 to 7, doesn't seem to fit where it is, and I already, already went through that with you. And that's one of the reasons why I'm laboring slowly to talk about the, the appropriate context. You can't lift this out. I've got books on my shelf at home where this, where this paragraph is lifted out, and there's an entire theology of politics that's developed, the entire theology of church and state developed on 13, 1 to 7. And if I have to tell you straight out, 13, 1 to 7 really doesn't say a whole lot about those topics. It's not even the primary New Testament teaching on the role of the state and the Christian. But it has been lifted up and made to say so much that it was not designed to say. And that's why I'm, I'm laboring to make sure that you're not only hearing what the text says, but that you're also learning a method. And you're realizing that, gee, I can't cherry pick stuff I can't just take it away from the page. I've got to make sure I'm reading before and after it and understanding how does it fit in the argument? How does it fit in the book? How does the book fit in the writings of the, of this per, of the other writings of this person? How does it fit in the New Testament? How does, it, how does it fit in the Bible? So here's the narrow context, the narrower Romans context. Romans 12, 9 to 21 instructs us. This is just by way of review, and I'm repeating myself already. Romans 12, 9 to 21 instructs us to let love be genuine and to love one another with brotherly affection. And then 13, 8 says to owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So there's the brackets that I'm talking about, the sandwich. These, here's your two slices of bread. And the meat in the middle of all of that is this Romans 13, 1 to 7. And in the middle of it, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Help, help us here, Paul. If we allow, here's my argument, if we allow this immediate context, and we allow Romans 14 and 15 to sneak in as well, and this whole extended argument about the weak and the strong, because it's my belief, as I'll unpack this for you to come, it's my belief that there are some within these Roman house churches, the weak, who believe what the theologians would call an over-realized eschatology. And that means, hey, Jesus has come. That means we are not beholden to Caesar anymore, so on the government. And Paul's going to put the big break right on that and say, nuh-uh. Yes, Christ has come, but your living in light of the future is over-realized. Christ has come, but he's also set up for the interim before he returns intermediaries in order to maintain order, and you're to submit to them. You can imagine some fur flu in those Roman house churches. So if we allow the immediate context to guide us, 
We can surmise, as I just said, that those in Rome who thought that the kingdom had come, there was no longer any need to obey the government. Jesus is coming back any day now. You ought to abide by the law. Jesus is coming back any day now. You ought not to murder. Jesus is coming back. See what I'm doing? See, this is how the people were, some of the people were behaving. They no longer needed to obey the government, especially the government, and you can immediately identify with this, especially the government that had a, repu- a nasty reputation of overtaxing people. So if Jesus is coming back, I ain't giving you anything, Caesar. It's like, it's like you sitting here saying, Jesus is coming back, I'm safe in Christ, let the IRS call me because I ain't paying my taxes this year. Let me know how that works out. But, but it's, it, it, there's a very close parallel. That's what you would do. And if you did that, then you would have an overrealized eschatology. Well, Jesus, I'm a Christian. Jesus is coming back. I'm not filling out taxes. I'm not doing a W-2. I'm not calling Norman to help me. Norman right now is twitching. <laughs> but then there's... There is an opposite extreme that needs to be avoided as well. It's the under-realized. And so, watch this now. And so, there's the same mentality that Jesus is coming back, so now I'm going to overthrow the government. I'm going to take up arms and rebel against the government. That's not allowing the promise of Jesus' return to have enough impact upon your life. You think that you must transform the government. You think that you must overturn what you perceive to be injustices. Now, I ask you, and I know I'm getting very close to the bone here now. I'm asking you to stay with me and to hear what I'm doing and to evaluate your thinking about some of these subjects relative to what I'm teaching you now. Don't take what you believe, maybe even with all your might, and say, no, I'm bringing that to the text, I'm gonna make it say that. Because that's what some people are doing. An abominable, abominable biblical interpretation going on in the churches right now, conservative churches right now, making texts like this say what they need to say in order for their conspiracy theories to continue to work. The great conspiracy theory that we need to hold to is the fact that Christ is raised from the dead and he's coming back. That's a conspiracy to end all conspiracies, and we in Christ are agents of that. We have to ask ourselves, why is it that conspiracy theories are now taking such a deep and profound root in Christian churches like this one. Because it's happening. It's happening. An awful lot is being revealed. Like I've been telling you, I, I don't claim to be a prophet or the son of one, but I said to my wife this past week, With every passing week, with every passing month, it seems to be that that vision, if you please, that God gave me way back when really seems to be appropriate when I described the coronavirus as being a a giant magnifying glass that, that just been laid over everything. And what does a magnifying glass do? It takes that which was small and perhaps even hidden and now expands it so that there's no avoiding it. 
But it also does a second thing. It also reveals those things that may have been hidden to the naked eye, and it's made them at least big enough for them now to be seen. That imagery, in my mind, works almost perfectly to some of the things we're looking at right now. In other words, the things that we're battling against now in the church are not brand new things. They've just been beneath the surface. And now the coronavirus, the magnifying glass of the coronavirus has just yanked it all out, so now it's bigger than life, and you and I can't avoid it. Being subject to the governing authorities is therefore, please hear me, I'm working here, church. Being subject to the governing authorities is therefore, is therefore consistent with not being conformed to the pattern of this age. It's consistent with the renewed mind. That's Romans 12, 2. A person that loves one's enemies and leaves vengeance in the hands of the ultimate judge. In other words, what Paul is saying is that you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are not to conform to the pattern of this age. Yes, you can be that and still submit to the governing authorities. They're not mutually exclusive, as some say it is. If I'm to be no longer conformed to the pattern of this age and the government is based on the pattern of this age, how could you possibly ask me to submit to it? And a very strong argument can be made for the government's foundation being, if you please, anti-Christ. And yet, and yet, Paul, inspired author of Scripture, is going to call us to obedience to the local authorities, if you please, without, without tripping over conformity to this age. So it's a fine line, and I want you to feel the fine line with me, because there are many who have just leapt over the line. And in fact, will work it in reverse. No, 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 no. My take on the government is, in fact, my applying my lack of conformity to this age, to, to this government, and rebelling against conforming in this age. It's, it's tough. It's tough stuff. The wider, that's just within Romans, the wider New Testament context provides even further balance, still under the first point. This is the second of the two contexts of which I spoke. The first was the narrow Romans context. This one now is the wider New Testament context. And listen, this, push, this pushes for a balance as well. Within Paul, not Romans now, but still within Paul. In Galatians 1.4, Paul tells us that we have been delivered from this present evil age. In Galatians 4.26, he says we are to seek the Jerusalem above. In Philippians 3.20, he reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And so you've got to put this together in your theology of politics here. And I ask the question of myself, and I've asked it of people I've engaged in conversation, and I ask you, if we are to look at our lives and ask, where is my time and energy being invested? Would that equation come back to us and say, in the seeking first of the kingdom of God or in the propagation of some political platform? When your citizenship is in heaven, 
when you are to seek the Jerusalem that is above, when you've been freed from this present evil age, how ought you to think about life, which includes politics? Outside of Paul, in Luke 20, 25, Jesus himself says to this push, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So here's this brilliant opportunity for Jesus to overthrow the government if he ever had an opportunity, to tell his people, the zealots among them, to, to take up arms and let's go to overthrow. That would have been it, and he doesn't do it. So show me a coin. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, pay your taxes. I, I, I don't have... Jesus, Jesus, in the coming of his kingdom, is not going to get all worked up about taxes. Neither should we. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 11, 1 Peter 2, 11, Peter describes us as exiles and sojourners. Two eleven. First Peter two eleven. We are exiles and sojourners. And then in thirteen, he says this. First Peter two thirteen. Be subject. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. What a passage. What a verse that is. Verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Very similar to what Paul said, which suggests that this sort of this common body of teaching that's going around, that the apostles have grabbed and inserted into their teaching on it. And it comes right out of the mouth of Jesus. This all flows from the render to Caesar what is Caesar's. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14, similar to Paul's passage in Galatians 4.26, Paul says in Galatians 4.26, we're to seek the Jerusalem above. Hebrews 13.14 tells us we are to seek a city that is yet to come. So he's making this point that there are priorities for the Christian. Why? Because your residency is heaven. You're to seek the Jerusalem that is above. You are exiles here. You're a sojourner here. This is not home. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't care about what's going on here, but it does mean that you have to be reminded that it's secondary. It is not ultimate. And too many of us are living as though it's ultimate. Like if the wrong person is in the White House, the world's going to end. It's not. And God's sovereign over that. In other words, as followers of the soon and coming king, we should not absolutize any form of government. Nor should we place our ultimate hope or pledge our ultimate allegiance to any government or political party. One writer calls us, calls them temporary subordinates. I love it. I love it. 
governmental leaders as temporary subordinates, meaning what? They're temporary, they're not gonna be there forever, and subordinate, meaning they will one day give an account to the final judge. And that's what we're gonna see in the coming weeks as I unfold 13, one to seven. We talk in this country rightly about our government giving an account to the body politic, you and me, and that's right in my opinion. I would much rather live here than in a dictatorship. But we are not the final authority that that leader is going to have to encounter. Yes, they're accountable to us in a democratic society, but at the end of the day, if we're reading Romans 13, 1 to 7 correctly, they will stand before the judge of all of the earth and say, and give an account for what, what it is that they've done. That's what is meant by subordinate. Their authority is derived. They have no authority in and of themselves. Because as we're going to see, the scriptures tell us, they've been placed there by God. I know the question's a legion here. Are you telling me that God placed Hitler where he did? Are you telling me that Stalin was there by God's? Are you telling me that Pol Pot in the killing fields of Cambodia was there? Are you telling me? And go down the line. I mean, you know, it can, it can work most favorably. You know, who's your favorite politician of all time? God, see, that's where Christians go off the rail. Very fascinating survey. Very fascinating survey. Just came, just came out, not recently, a couple of months, a couple of months ago, not, not too long ago. Christians like you and me were asked whether or not you believed government appointees are there by God's design. And the fascinating, the fascinating part about that poll was that when your person was there, very high numbers about it being God's will. The very same question was asked after the election. And the very same people whose numbers were soaring because their person was there, now when that person wasn't there, now all of a sudden it wasn't God's will. Can't have it both. You cannot have it both. You cannot have it both. Temporary subordinates. Okay, the, last, the closing minutes on the first verse, just to set up for next week, if the good Lord is willing. The command, the command and its reason. So we turn now to Romans 13.1. That's all I want to do in closing. Let every person be subject to the, the governing authorities. Here's the reason for, that for, it's a big word there, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the command, very straightforward, I've already said it to you two or three times, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Every person, no exceptions. This means now in the first century, right, Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, rich, poor, and if we extrapolate that to the 21st century, there are no exceptions. Let every person be subject. God has a way of ordering the world, and he expects us to go with the grain of his universe. So one of the things that we take away from this is that a solid Bible-believing Christian will also be a good citizen. You will not be a troublemaker. You will not make governing difficult for those who are in government. 
Now, I can hear you whispering because I'm whispering it too, unless, of course, they're heretical. Unless, of course, as I'm going to show you in the weeks to come, they ask me to do something contrary to the will of God. And we've got, we've got instances of that in the Bible itself. Subject means, very simply, notice it does not say obey. Although the trajectory of subject being submission to moves in that direction. But it doesn't say it explicitly. Subject means willingly placing oneself under those raised up by God. It's passive. You willingly place yourself under the authority of the person placed there by God. Notice there's no caveat. The caveat, there's no caveat, there's no asterisk that says, if I like him, if this is my woman, What is the reason for this? Here's the reason. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. I will spend a little bit more time with this next week, but this is, if this doesn't make you step back, I don't know what will. We're to submit to the governing authorities because there's no authority except for God. See, there's the derived authority. Nobody is in power right now by their own power. And the power that they have is derived. There's no authority except from God. And those that exist, those in authority that exist, are instituted by God. They're put there by God. Now, you've got to expand your categories here with me. You've got to allow your mind to be stretched here by the Spirit of God because this has got biblical background to it. Like marriage... Government is an aspect of God's common grace. It's designed to be good for all. Whether you're an atheist, whether you're an anarchist, whether you're a communist, whether you're a capitalist, it is designed to create order, and it's an aspect of God's common grace with its design to cause and create human flourishing. It is a temporary means for creating and maintaining order. Like my marriage to my wife is temporary. It's a little bit difficult for me to swallow, admittedly. Temporary meaning what? One of us will probably die before the other. Marriage is over. But when we both die, there's no marriage in heaven. All marriages are temporary. So too, all of government like marriage, government is an aspect of God's common grace, a temporary means for creating and maintaining order according to God's design. That's how you measure a government. Is it rewarding the good and punishing the evil? Is it creating order that allows you and me to live and to work and to flourish? You ask the exact same questions of my marriage. Is my life with Kate ordered in such a way that there's order, that our children are respectful, and that each of us have the opportunity before God to flourish? Now, she's married to me, so you know she's got nothing but human flourishing going on all over the place. Look at, look at one of the elders sitting in the front row going like this. You're supposed to be for me. 
But it's sobering to think of it as temporary. All government authority, therefore, is derived. John 19, 11. Jesus before Pilate. Pilate looks Jesus in the eye and said, do you know who I am? And Jesus says, are you kidding me? John 19, 11. Jesus looks Pilate right back in the eye and says, you have no authority except what my father gave you. And so Jesus doesn't even flinch. Why? Because he knows that Pilate's authority is derived and his father's the king. His father's the one with all of the final authority. That's why Jesus, in giving his great commission, Matthew chapter 28, would say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. 28, 18 to 20. Not only is all government authority therefore derived, ultimately, it's under the supreme authority of God. I won't take the time. I'll do this next week. But you can go to Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel, courageous young man that he is, he stands right up to Nebuchadnezzar and says basically the same thing Jesus said to Pilate. If you think you're going to scare me by throwing me in the lion's den, you have no idea how government works. But notice what he does. He obeys. He doesn't try to overthrow. He's ready, he's ready to die. God raises up rulers for good. He raises up rulers for evil. I'm utterly persuaded of that. He raises up rulers for judgment. Think about this. I'm going to ground this in the scriptures. You think about those whom God raised up. Let's start, let's start early. Pharaoh. Was Pharaoh a believer in God? Mm-mm. You keep coming with me. What about Cyrus? What about Nebuchadnezzar? If I'm reading the Bible right, God appointed those men. For what reason? They brought judgment. They were, they were an instrument in God's hands to bring judgment upon his people that he then judged. I have, I have not met very many people in the 21st century that is comfortable with that idea that God might put somebody in a position of power and authority to bring judgment. We're all of the mindset, I want this person, I want this man, I want this woman, because this person's going to allow me to prosper. This person's going to put the right people on the bench. This person's going to do this, and this person's going to do that. All the while, we've got no category whatsoever that this person that God just placed there that I don't like at all could very well be an instrument of judgment in that person's hand. God might very well give you what you want. God might very well put somebody there you cannot stand that's going to be an instrument in his hand to bring about something that's going to transform your life one way or the other. Do we have a theology robust enough for that? There'll be more on this next week. All right, let me finish. Two contexts, the narrower context of Romans, the wider context of the New Testament, and then the one command. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. It raises numerous questions, I admit that, several of which I promise you, if the Lord gives me breath and he does not return, we will address next week. But for now, in closing, it's enough to be reminded, this is, a, this is an ESV study Bible note that I'm lifting right here. Listen to this. It's enough to be reminded that, quote, historically, when the church and state 
have become too closely aligned, the result most often has been the compromise of the church. When was the last time you heard a government compromising because of the influence of the church? I doubt any of you have an example. Maybe you do. But let me ask you the question in reverse. How many times have you seen the church compromise with the state? You can go all the way back to Constantine. And you can trace it historically from there. I would argue if we haven't fallen in yet, we have one foot over the edge and the other foot on the proverbial banana peel. Historically, when the church and state have come too closely aligned, the result most often historically has been the compromise of the church, which is why I said several weeks ago, several months ago now, people are more concerned about my political views than my theological views. Instead, in the words of another writer, and I leave you with this, instead, the church is and must live as a sign of the coming kingdom of God, characterized by what Paul will say in Romans 14, 17, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, not by chaos, violence, and hatred. I submit that to you for your contemplation and further discussion in the weeks to come. Our Father, we give you thanks for this hard text. I pray that uh, I have set the context and dealt with this first verse appropriately. And if I have not, have mercy on me and strike it from the minds of those who are here and online right now. But if I have done a decent job and been true to the scriptures, then let it take root, Father, on fertile soil, please. I'm a frail man. I have my thoughts, and it's hard to get them in line with some things that your word says. But that's what I want personally, and it's what I want for these dear saints. I want to be a kingdom-motivated pastor, and I want to be the pastor of a kingdom-motivated people so that somebody can look at us and say, you're more like Jesus than you are blank. And I fear, dear God, that that's not the case right now. I thank you for your patience, and I ask you for your mercy on my soul, on the souls of these saints, on the soul of the church, that you would use this to bring revival. You do not waste anything, dear God. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Humbly, with these my brothers and sisters, we pray these things. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.